Hey everybody, this is Beej from Love and Hate Radio, and I would just like to apologize because we were not able to get an episode out this week, so I'm just going to be uploading, as you probably saw from the title, a cross-promotion with Brandon's Down the Rabbit Hole series. No, we're doing this because Brandon is finishing college right now. And he's been relying on me to do stuff. And I'm not exactly confident in my friend's comedy abilities. <laughs> and I'm very bad at finding other people to do this with me. So that's why the last few episodes have been a lot different. And I believe we will be back to normal in about a week so please be patient everyone i'm not even sure if anyone's listening to this (laughs) but yeah just be patient please thank you all day today in hyde park new york thousands of men women and children have filed reverently past the shrine and looked upon an inscription which reads Born January the 30th, 1882, died April the 12th, 1945. For this is the 65th anniversary of the birth date of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And this is the shrine where now he sleeps forever with the immortals. But there is another shrine where Franklin Roosevelt lives with the living, with tiny boys and girls who find in his memory and achievement the inspiration to go on and overcome the obstacles of twisted limbs to triumph over the ravages of infantile paralysis. This shrine in Warm Springs, Georgia, and in similar places all over the country, is a testimonial to man's humanity to man. You created it, ladies and gentlemen. You, at his request, started the March of Dimes so that little children might walk. Let us dedicate ourselves to the perpetuation of that cause. Let us honor the dead by serving the living. Keep those dimes rolling. Keep our children walking. Give. And keep right on giving. Brother, can you spare a Dimes and Dollars to your local March of Dimes headquarters. Help make this the Victory March of Dimes. Time ho, time ho, we'll lift our polio with dimes and quarters and our dollars ho, time ho. Attaboy, Pluto! Join 1954 March of Dimes today, folks.
it's time to go down the rabbit hole. Um, this is the midweek episode. Um, you got me, so this is two episodes in a row where you got me alone. Um, and on this episode, like I kind of mentioned in the last one, I'm, I'm thinking about going down the whole polio vaccine. Um, I, I wanted to look in to see what that is because we keep hearing about how the polio vaccine, how it you know, is so similar to what we're going through with the COVID vaccine. And really looking at all this stuff, it's not similar at all. Um, the, the polio vaccine took years and decades to develop, not six months. Um, there's a lot of things in here where I'll talk about and, and go down. It was really tough. I feel like um, a lot of the information that was there about this vaccine and, and the, the trials and tribulations that went through to getting it have been scrubbed a little bit. Um, I think because of the comparisons that it's been given to COVID. Um, there's information there was a vaccine before SALKS, which I can find very little information on. Um, very little. Um, I, I researched every way I could, and everything I did just kept coming up with Salk's vaccine um, in 1955. But there was another one by uh, Hillary Kaprowski that came out in 1950 um, that was an oral vaccine. It uh, was not okayed in the U.S. It was okayed outside of the U.S. and actually was very successful from everything that I read outside in the U.S. But I know from other research there was another one after that and before Salks that was dangerous um, on information that I found other places with reference to it but have not been able to find any information on the one that was before Salk. so it's quite interesting on some of that where it seems like some information that I can find stuff about but can't find any definitive information um, and I've looked pretty hard so but before we go into that I actually wanted to go down a list that I found and this is on history.com about Five of the most deadly, the, the worst pandemics um, in history and how they finally ended. Um, so first one I wanted to talk about was a plague of Justinian. Justinian. Um, three of the deadliest pandemics in recorded history were caused by a single bacterium, Yersinia pestis, a fatal infection otherwise known as the plague. The plague of Justinian arrived in Constantinople, the capital of the Byzantine Empire in 541 CE. It was carried over the Mediterranean Sea from Egypt, a recently conquered land, paying tribute to Emperor Justinian and grain. Plague-ridden fleas hitched a ride on the black rats that snaked, snacked on the grain. The plague decimated Constantinople and spread like wildfire across Europe, Asia, North Africa, and Arabia, killing an estimated 30 to 50 million people perhaps half of the world's population. People had no real understanding of how to fight it other than trying to avoid sick people. Just, yeah, stay away from me. It's like the, it's like the zombies. Uh, as to how the plague ended, the best guess is that the majority of people in a pandemic somehow survive, and those who survive have immunity. So really, the biggest one of the biggest plagues, 30 to 50 million people wiped out by this plague. And basically their way of defending against it was um, survive. Kind of sounds like herd immunity. The whole idea of all of a sudden that everyone who kept telling us herd immunity was a stupid thought I keep talking about now. So uh, the plague never really went away. And when it returned 800 years later, it killed with reckless abandon. The Black Death, which hit Europe in 1347, claimed an astonishing 200 million lives in just four years. As for how to stop the disease, people still had no scientific understanding of contagion. 
but they knew what it had that it had something to do with proximity. That's why forward-thinking officials in Venetian-controlled port city of Ragusa decided to keep newly arrived sailors in isolation until they could prove they weren't sick. At first, sailors were held on the ships for 30 days, which became known in Venetian law as Trentino. As time went on, the Venetians increased the forced isolation to 40 days, or Quarantino. The origin of the word quarantine and the start of its practice in the Western world. And it had an effect. It worked. So, Quarantino. So that's where we get the word quarantine. It was Quarantino, or 40 days. Um, the Great Plague of London. London never really caught a break after the Black Death. The plague resurfaced roughly every 10 years from 1348 to 1665. 40 outbreaks in just over 300 years. And with each new plague epidemic, 20% of the men, women, and children living in the British capital were killed. The New World Order would love this. By the early 1500s, England imposed the first laws to separate and isolate the sick. Homes stricken by plague were marked with a bale of hay strung to a pole outside. If you had infected family members, you had to carry a white pole when you went out in public. Cats and dogs were believed to carry the disease, so there was a wholesale massacre of hundreds of thousands of animals. And that's one thing you got to remember, though. Cats and dogs were not as revered as pets as they are now back in these days. So, I mean, really the idea of them being, you know, they were barely a step up from rats at this point. So, I mean, the the massacre of the animals, it, it wouldn't be seen as anything more than massacring a bunch of rats. Um, I know a lot of people listening think that's horrible, but this is just the thinking of those days. Uh, the Great Plague of 1665 was the last one of the worst of the century's long outbreaks, killing 100,000 Londoners in just seven months. All public entertainment was banned, and victims were forcibly shut into their homes to prevent the spread of the disease. Red crosses were painted on their doors along with a plea of forgiveness, Lord have mercy upon us. As cruel as it was to shut up the sick in their homes and bury the dead in mass graves, it may have been the only way to bring the last great plague outbreak to an end. Is that what we're going towards? I, 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 wouldn't, believe, I wouldn't doubt it. Um, smallpox. So a European disease ravages the new world. Smallpox was an endemic to Europe, Asia, and Arabia for centuries, a persistence menace that killed three out of ten people it infected and left the rest with pockmarked scars. But the death rate in the old world paled in comparison to the devastation wrought on native populations in the New World when the smallpox virus arrived in the 15th century with the first European explorers. So one thing a lot of people don't realize, the bringing of smallpox to Native Americans here in the United States killed off probably more Native Americans than uh, Americans, you know, than the white settlers did with guns and everything else. Smallpox ravaged the indigenous people. Um, the indigenous people of modern-day Mexico and the United States had zero natural immunity to smallpox, and the virus cut them down by the tens of millions. There hasn't been a kill-off in human history to match what happened in the Americas. 90 to 95% of the indigenous population wiped out over a century. Mexico goes from 11 million people pre-conquest to 1 million. 90 to 95% wiped out by smallpox. Centuries later, smallpox became the first virus epidemic to be ended by a vaccine. In the late 18th century, a British doctor named Edward Jenner discovered the milkmaids, that milkmaids infected with a milder virus called cowpox seemed immune to smallpox. Jenner famously inoculated his gardener's eight-year-old son with cowpox and then exposed him to smallpox vaccine with no ill effect. In 
The annihilation of the smallpox, the most dreadful scourge of the human species, must be the final result of this practice, wrote Jenner in 1801. And he was right. It took nearly two more centuries, but in 1980, the World Health Organization announced that smallpox had been completely eradicated from the face of the earth. So, yeah, so it is possible. So that was one way that they found out. So the first vaccination was smallpox back in the late 1700s. So that that's pretty it's pretty impressive. That that's a long time ago. I mean, most people really don't think of any vaccine or anything like that coming up until, you know, recent times. But that was, you know, 200 plus years ago. So that's pretty amazing. So yeah, so that that was the first real vaccination with smallpox. Um, cholera, victory for public health research. In the early to mid-19th century, cholera tore through England, killing tens of thousands. The prevailing scientific theory of the day said that the disease was spread by foul air known as miasma. But a British doctor named John Snow suspected that the mysterious disease which killed its victims within days of the first symptoms lurked in London's drinking water. Snow acted like a scientific Sherlock Holmes investigating hospital records and morgue reports to track the precise locations of deadly outbreaks. He created a geographic chart of cholera deaths over a 10-day period and found a cluster of 500 fatal infections surrounding the Broad Street Pump, a popular city well for drinking water. As soon as I became acquainted with the situation and extent of this eruption of cholera, I suspected some contamination of the water of the much-frequented street pump in Broad Street, wrote Snow. With dogged effort, Snow convinced local officials to remove the pump handle on the Broad Street drinking well, rendering it unusable. And like magic, the infections dried up. Snow's work didn't cure cholera overnight, but eventually led to a global effort to improve urban sanitation and protect drinking water from contamination. While cholera has largely been eradicated in developed countries, it's still a persistent killer in third world countries lacking adequate sewage treatment and access to clean drinking water. So that's one of the big ones there. So, um, yeah. So, cholera. We were able to eliminate it, or not really eliminate it, but basically realized that it was caused by bad drinking water, really. Um, once we cleaned that up, we, we were able to, to fix it. So it's quite interesting to see some of these things that people don't really think about. You know, they, they think that, you know, we look at the COVID-19. Is COVID-19 a horrible thing? Yes. But is it as bad as some of the ones we've had in the past? No. Um, you know, I'm not going to get on the whole thing and I'm going to try and stay out of the the whole idea of COVID-19 and all that stuff and just kind of focus on the, the past events. Um, but there's been a lot of them. So there's been a lot of plagues throughout time. So the earliest recorded pandemic happening during the Peloponnesian War after the disease passed through Libya, Ethiopia, and Egypt, it crossed the Athenian walls as the Spartans laid siege as much as two-thirds of the population died. The symptoms included fever, thirst, blood, bloody throat and tongue, red skin and lesions. The disease suspected to have been typhoid fever weakened the Athenians significantly. It was a significant factor in the defeat by the Spartans. So they really say the Spartans beat Athens because the people of Athens had typhoid. Um, and that was in 430 B.C., 165 AD, the Antonian Plague was possibly an early appearance of smallpox that began with the Huns. The Huns then infected the Germans, who passed it to the Romans, and then returning troops spread it throughout the Roman Empire. Symptoms included fever, sore throat, diarrhea, and if the patient lived long enough, pus-filled sores. 
This plague continued until about 180 AD, claiming Emperor Marcus Aurelius as one of its victims. 250 AD is Cyprian Plague. Named after the first known victim, the Christian bishop of Carthage, the Cyprian Plague entailed diarrhea, vomiting, throat ulcers, fever, and gangrenous hands and feet. City dwellers fled to the country to escape infection, but instead spread the disease further. Possibly starting in Ethiopia, it passed through northern Africa into Rome, then on to Egypt and northward. There were recurring outbreaks over the next three centuries. In 444 AD, it hit Britain and obstructed defense efforts against the Picts and Scots, causing the British to seek help from the Saxons, who would soon control the island. So another one, where all of a sudden the, the illness actually caused someone to lose control and to lose a war. Um, and it also shows, too, that you know the spreading... Um, I know a lot of people don't like the idea of being, you know, isolated, but really, you look at this, the the people running from the disease to, you know, the, the hillsides and, you know, everywhere else to get out of the city actually ended up spreading it even further. Uh, we mentioned the Justinian Plague uh, in, Urge, in Egypt, uh, spread through Palestine and the Byzantine Empire and then throughout the Mediterranean. Plague changed the course of the empire, squelching Emperor Justinian's plans to bring the Roman Empire back together and causing a massive economic struggle. It is also credited with creating an apocalyptic atmosphere that spurred the rapid spread of Christianity. See, there we go. The Justinian plague is the pro- reason for Christianity. <laughs> Just kidding. Kind of. Uh, recurrences of the next two centuries eventually killed about 50 million people. 26% of the world population is believed to be the first significant appearance of the bubonic plague, which features enlarged lymphatic gland and is carried by rats and spread by fleas. Which is why people still to this day have an issue with rats. Um, is because of, you know, the bubonic plague and all that. That's why they figured to be dirty animals. So, in the 11th century, you got leprosy. Though it had been around for ages, leprosy grew into a pandemic in Europe in the, in the Middle Ages, resulting in the building of numerous leprosy-focused hospitals to accommodate the vast number of victims. A slow-developing bacterial disease that causes sores and deformities, leprosy was believed to be a punishment from God that ran in families. This belief led to moral judgments and ostracizing of victims. Now known as Hansen's disease, it still afflicts tens of thousands of people a year and can be fatal if not treated with antibiotics. And that's one a lot of people don't realize. Leprosy still exists. They just changed the name. So, and there used to be, there's a Molokai, which is an island, uh, uh, basically an island on Hawaii that was a colony. That's where they sent people. It was a beautiful place, I guess, to have leprosy. But, um, yeah. 1350, you got the Black Death, responsible for the death of one-third of the world population. This second large outbreak of the bubonic plague possibly started in Asia and moved west in caravans, entering through Sicily in 1347 AD when plague sufferers arrived in the port of Messina and spread throughout Europe, throughout Europe rapidly. Dead bodies became so prevalent that many remained rotting on the ground and created a constant stench in the cities. England and France were so incapacitated by the plague that countries called a truce to their war. The British feudal system collapsed when the plague changed economic circumstances and demographics. Ravaging populations in Greenland, Vikings lost the strength to wage battle against native populations, and their exploration of North America halted. So, yeah. So, this might be without the bubonic plague, or the Black Death, we might actually be, you know, a different country. Because the Vikings may have started everything before, you know, before the the, the other Europeans started coming over here. Um, Because it's far believed and far proven now that the Vikings were here first. So um, anybody who believes Christopher Columbus was in North America, he never made it to North America. He made it to the Bahamas and to South America. So he was never even here. 
1492, the Columbian Exchange. Following the arrival of the Spanish in the Caribbean, diseases such as smallpox, measles, and bubonic plague were passed along to the native populations by the Europeans. With no previous exposure, these diseases devastated indigenous people, with as many as 90% dying throughout the North and South continents. Like I said, this is kind of where all of a sudden, you know, we started wiping people out with the disease. Upon arrival on the island of Hispaniola, Hispanola, Christopher Columbus encountered the Tayono people, population 60,000. By 1548, the population stood at less than 500. This scenario repeated itself throughout the Americas. So, the ones we didn't kill with smallpox and everything else, we came through and killed with everything else. So, because when we came in, they had no immunity to these diseases. These are diseases that we were specific to us. And then we handed them to them. It's one of those things that a lot of people talk about now. And this is one of the things I'll go through a little bit. And we kind of mention it when we're talking about why some of these other diseases started popping up in the nineteen in the, in the you know, 1900s and everything else. And why the 20th century, all of a sudden we started getting these diseases are possibly because of our hygiene. Because we clean so much that, you know, and use so many antibacterials and everything else to clean ourselves and to clean everything around us that we're not we're not exposed to these viruses like we were, you know, our, our predecessors were like people were in the past. We're not exposed to these um, people who sit at home and wash constantly and, you know, don't ever leave their house um, are actually more predisposed to disease because they're not exposed to anything. So that is a very well-known fact. So, in 1520, the Aztec Empire was destroyed by a smallpox infection. The disease killed more of its victims and incapacitated others. Uh, it weakened the population so they were unable to resist Spanish colonizers and left farmers unable to produce needed crops. There's another one where the Aztec Empire is believed to partly have fallen because we gave them smallpox. Uh, research in 2019 even conclu concluded that the deaths of some 56 million Native Americans of the 16th and 17th centuries, largely through disease, may have altered Earth's climate as vegetation growth on previously tilled land drew more CO2 from the atmosphere and caused a cooling effect. We might have actually even cooled. We might have slowed down global warming by killing people. NWO must love that thought process. That's what the New Lizard Order wants to do. To kill us all. To stop global warming. There we go. We figured it out. Um, and another devastating appearance of bubonic plague led to the deaths of 20% of London's population. As human death tolls mounted and mass graves appeared, hundreds of thousands of cats and dogs were slaughtered as a possible cause and the disease spread through ports along the Thames. The worst of the outbreak tapered off in the fall of 1666, around the same time as another destructive event, the Great Fire of London. So, and if you look at the, there's a graph that I have here and one of the things I'm reading, a graph showing the huge increase in deaths during the Great Plague of London in 1665 and 1666. Um, and then you look at it and it basically goes, the plague amazingly goes from like 500 people dying um, per month to 8,000 in the month of August. So, and it jumps from June to August from 500 people dying per month to over, and that's, you know, just people dying, not necessarily from the plague, to over 8,000 people dying just from the plague. So, it's pretty crazy to look at. 
Um, just, yeah, so crazy. So the, the bubonic plague seemed to be more there during the summer than during the winter months. Uh, 1817, first cholera pandemic. The first of seven cholera pandemics over the next 150 years. This wave of the small intestine infection originated in Russia, where one million people died, spreading through feces, infected water, and food. The bacterium was passed along to British soldiers who brought it to India, where millions more died. The reach of the British Empire and its navy spread cholera to Spain, Africa, Indonesia, China, Japan, Italy, Germany, and America, where it killed 150,000 people. A vaccine was created in 1885, but pandemics continued. Um, 1855, third plague pandemic. Starting in China, moving to India and Hong Kong, the bubonic plague claimed 15 million victims. Initially spread by fleas during a mining boom in Yunnan, the plague is considered a factor in the Parthe Rebellion and the Taiping Taiping, uh, Taiping Rebellion. India faced the most substantial casualties, and the epidemic was used as an excuse for repressive policies that sparked some revolt against the British. The pandemic was considered active until 1960, when cases dropped below a couple hundred. That's from 1855 to 1960. 95 years the plague was active. Until the cases dropped below a couple hundred. So that's not that it went away. That's just that it dropped below a couple hundred per year. Um, So 95 years. Uh, 1875, Fiji measles pandemic. After Fiji ceded to the British Empire, a royal party visited Australia as a gift from Queen Victoria. Arriving during a measles outbreak, the royal party brought the disease back to their island, and it was spread further by the tribal heads and police who met with them upon their return. Spreading quickly, the island was littered with corpses that were scavenged by wild animals. Entire villages died and were burned down, sometimes with the sick trapped inside the fires. One-third of Fiji's population, a total of 40,000 people, died. Russian flu. The first significant flu pandemic started in Siberia and Kazakhstan. Uh, Traveled to Moscow and made its way into Finland and then Poland, where it moved into the rest of Europe. By the following year, it had crossed the ocean into North America and Africa. By the end of 1890, 360,000 had died. Um, 1918. This is a big one where they talk about the avian flu. 1918, the 1918 pandemic and how they keep, you know, comparing this pandemic. Um... To what's happening now. So the avian-borne flu that resulted in 50 million deaths worldwide. The 1918 flu was first observed in Europe, the United States, and parts of Asia before swiftly spreading around the world. At the time, there were no effective drugs or vaccines to treat this killer flu strain. Wire service reports of a flu outbreak in Madrid in the spring of 1918 led to the pandemic being called the Spanish flu. By October, hundreds of thousands of Americans died in body storage scarcity. Hit crisis level, but the flu threat disappeared in the summer of 1919 when most of the infected either developed immunities or died. And that's the one thing that gets me on this one. Everyone compares this to the flu of 1918. The 1918 flu was gone in a year. In a year. Because most people either developed immunity or they died. That would be the whole idea of herd immunity that we've talked about multiple times. 1957, Asian flu. Starting in Hong Kong and spreading throughout China and then into the United States, the Asian flu became 
widespread in England, where over six months, 14,000 people died. A second wave followed in early 1958, causing an estimated total of about 1.1 million deaths globally, with 116 deaths in the United States alone. A vaccine was developed effectively containing the pandemic. So, hey, they were able to do one pretty quick there. So, that one, kudos. Kudos to them. First identified in 1981, AIDS destroys a person's immune system, resulting in eventual death by disease that the body would usually fight off. Those infected by the HIV virus encountered fever, headache, and enlarged lymph nodes upon infection. When symptoms subside, carriers became highly infectious through blood and genital fluid, and the disease destroys T-cells. AIDS was first observed in American gay communities, but is believed to have developed from a chimpanzee virus from West Africa in the 1920s. The disease, which spreads through certain body fluids, moved to Haiti in the 60s and then New York and San Francisco in the 70s. Treatments have been developed to slow the progress of the disease, but 35 million people worldwide have died of AIDS since its discovery and a cure is yet to be found. You know, that's one thing, you know, got to make sure and get a vaccine just like they did for AIDS. Oh, wait, never mind. 2003, we got SARS. First identified in 2003 after several months of cases, severe acute respiratory syndrome is believed to have possibly started with bats, spread to cats, and then to humans in China, followed by 26 other countries infecting 8,096 people with 774 deaths. SARS is characterized by respiratory problems, dry cough, fever, and head and body aches, and is spread through respiratory droplets from coughs and sneeze. Quarantine efforts proved effective, and by July, the virus was contained and hasn't appeared since. China was criticized for trying to suppress information about the virus at the beginning of the outbreaks. SARS was seen by global health professionals as a wake-up call to improve outbreak responses, and lessons from the pandemic were used to keep diseases like H1N1, Ebola, and Zika under control. Now, that's one thing you got to think about. Everyone always talks about this huge SARS outbreak in 2003. 8,000 people were infected with 774 deaths. It's not very many people infected, and not a lot of deaths. But you have to admit, the, the amount of people that died compared to infections is, you know, the percentage is, is pretty impressive. So, um, yeah, that's, that's a lot higher than COVID's percentage of people who are infected dying. Um, I'm not even going to go into the COVID ones. They're here. They talk about them. Um, but we've heard enough of that. We know how horrible that one is. So that's kind of the idea of some of these pandemics. So we come into now, you know, one of the things that we talked about and what's funny is if you listen to everything I just said, the one thing I said I was going to talk about, I haven't even mentioned yet because you know what? Polio wasn't, wasn't a huge killer. It's not really, doesn't even actually really fit into the pandemic idea, but not to say it wasn't bad, and it's amazing what we did with polio and, you know, the, the vaccine and all that. So a couple things to look at. One, the first recognized um, vaccine was actually Hillary Kaprowski developed the first oral polio vaccine in 1950 when he fed on February 27th an attenuated type 2 strain oral polio vaccine to a child. There were no side effects following vaccination. The child developed antibodies against polio. Within a year, he attenuated type 1 and 3, a polio virus, and made them into vaccines, which were tested for immunization of children in the United States. First demonstration of mass vaccination by oral route was carried out in then, then Belgian Congo, today Democratic Republic of Congo, where 250,000 children and infants were immunized with Kaprowski's oral polio vaccine within six weeks. Um, 
His work furthered the research for a live vaccine at a time when the idea of an inactivated vaccine was favored. So he was the one that really in 1950 came up with the first one. There is, um, it has been debunked, but there was a belief um, at a, for a time that his polio vaccine, because it did use um, DNA from, uh, bleh, my brain's went dead. Um, it used DNA from a capuchin monkey, I believe. Um, I was trying to see here in my notes. Um, it doesn't say I believe it was a capuchin monkey. I would have to find the the the, the actual belief here. But oh, macaw. Sorry, the vaccine virus was grown in tissue cultures taken from macaw monkeys, not capuchin. So macaw monkeys, um, and it was actually believed for a time. And uh, Rolling Stone actually had a did an article in 1992. Um, that said that his oral vaccine um, caused AIDS. That his vaccine for, for polio caused AIDS. Um, it has been debunked since then. But uh, they, they actually put out a uh, clarification in their December 1993 episode, or uh, 93 paper, the editors of Rolling Stones wish to clarify that they never intended to suggest in the article that there's any scientific proof, nor do they know of any scientific proof, that Dr. Kaprowski, an illustrious scientist, was in fact responsible for introducing AIDS to the human population, that he is the father of AIDS. Dr. Kaprowski, pioneering work in developing polio vaccines has helped spare suffering and death to hundreds of thousands of potential victims of paralytic poliomyelitis and is perhaps one of his greatest contributions in a lifetime of high and widely recognized achievements um yeah so there was a time that they basically they, they said that they thought his polio vaccine actually caused AIDS or brought aids to uh humans um but there has been plenty of tests they, they've gone through and test leftover vaccines from his initial you know uh vaccines that he made the oral vaccines and there is no proof and nothing in there that even shows that it was infected with SIV, um, which would have passed HIV on to humans. Um, so yeah, so that is one thing that I, I did find on that. Like I said, there has been there was stuff that I found, but I could not find any documentation or any proof or factual anything of another vaccine done be after him, after Kaprowski's, that was a, a complete and utter failure um, that actually got people sick, um, which comes down to what a lot of people come through with that whole idea of that um, we hear it a lot that polio vaccine actually got more people sick um, and killed more people than the actual vaccine or than the actual um, disease did um, there is proof that um, that happens now that now in now as can be there are more people that get um, polio from the vaccine than from the wild now, but that's a matter of less than 200 cases either way. Um, and there's an argument that if they didn't get the vaccine, then there would be more people that got it from the wild and it would spread. And it's one of those fun arguments that you can get into. Um, that's really the, the, what came first, the chicken or the egg. So it's one of those. Um, the big thing with polio. So a quick, you know, kind of, you know, what polio is. So um, this is from a, a thing called historyvaccines.org. A few diseases frightened parents more in the early part of the 20th century than polio did. Polio struck in the warm summer months, sweeping through towns and epidemics every few years. 
Though most people recover quickly from polio, some suffer temporary or permanent paralysis and even death. Many polio survivors were disabled for life. They were a visible, painful reminder to society of the enormous toll this disease took on young lives. Polio is a common name for poliomyelitis, which comes from the Greek words for gray and morrow, referring to the spinal cord and the suffix itis, meaning inflammation. So poliomyelitis shortened became polio. For a time, polio was called infantile paralysis, though it did not affect only the young. It was more common in younger people. Um, so that's why it was, you know, infantile paralysis. Um, yeah. So the cause of polio. Polio is caused by one of three types of polio virus, which are members of the enterovirus genius. These viruses spread through contact between people by nasal and oral secretions and by contact with contaminated feces. Polio virus enters the body through the mouth, multiplying along the way to the digestive tract, where it further multiplies. In about 98% of cases, polio is a mild illness, with no symptoms or with viral-like symptoms. In paralytic polio, the virus leaves the digestive tract, enters the bloodstreams, and then attacks nerve cells. Fewer than 1% to 2% of people who contract polio become paralyzed. In severe cases, the throat and chest may be paralyzed. Death may result if the patient does not receive artificial breathing support, which is where the iron lung comes in. So, uh, history of polio. It is likely that polio has plagued humans for thousands of years. An Egyptian carving from around 1400 BCE depicts a young man with a leg deformity similar to one caused by polio. Polio circulated in human population at low levels and appeared to be a relatively uncommon disease for most of the 1800s. Polio reached epidemic proportions in the early 1900s in countries with relatively high standards of living. At a time when other diseases such as diphtheria, typhoid, and tuberculosis were declining, indeed many scientists think that advance in hygiene paradoxically led to an increased incidence of polio. So this is what I mentioned earlier, where we talked about actually being clean um, and everything else actually led to the increase of, uh, of the virus. So, the theory is that in the past, infants were exposed to polio mainly through contaminated water supplies at a very young age. Infants' immune systems, aided by maternal antibodies still circulating in their blood, could quickly defeat poliovirus and de then develop lasting immunity to it. However, better sanitary conditions meant that exposure to polio was delayed until later in life, on average when a child had lost maternal protection and was also more vulnerable to the most severe form of the disease. Because of widespread vaccination, polio was eliminated from the Western Union Hemisphere in 1994. In 2016, it continued to circulate in just Afghanistan and Pakistan, with occasional spread to neighborhood countries. Vigorous vaccination programs are being conducted to eliminate these last pockets. Polio vaccination is still recommended worldwide because of the risk of imported cases. So, so yeah. So that's kind of the whole, you know, whole idea of polio so and that's one of the things a lot of people you know don't really do, really think much about you know where it came from oh my phone's ringing thought i turned that off so um so yeah so it, it's kind of one of those things that you know a lot of people you have to kind of look at you know um where it came from um, and, and all that stuff, which a lot of people don't really think of it. So um, the contagiousness of polio, um, it was after a series of polio epidemics in Sweden, Ivor Wickham 
published two important findings about polio. First, he suggests that polio was a contagious disease that could be spread from person to person. Second, he recognized that polio could be present in people who did not appear to have a severe form of the disease. These cases are known as abortive cases. So that's when it first started someone really, I mean, I'm sure before that someone had said it, but this is when he's starting to say that, hey, maybe there are people that have it who don't realize they have it. So, which is something we hear a lot about right now with, you know, COVID, that there's a lot of, you know, you know, people that have it, asymptomatic people. So, and uh, March of Dimes, which is a big one. So, an enormous fundraising effort began when entertainer Eddie Cantor suggested on the radio that people send dimes to President Roosevelt at the White House to help fight polio. Within a few weeks, people had mailed 2,680,000 dimes to the president. Other celebrities and then grassroots organizers joined in the campaign over the years. This March of Dimes raised tens of millions of dollars. Much of it went to the effort to find a vaccine. So that's one of the things I even played at the very beginning. And we'll have make sure to put uh, you know links to those two, two uh, videos where we played of uh, the March of Dimes commercials from the 1950s. So, um, so sorry, everything's... Once again, you know me, I'm always really bad with having like a million things going on or, you know, in front of me and a whole bunch of different things. So, um, cause this is just a huge thing that I wanted to really like go down in this vaccine. So, and it, it just, once I really started reading about it, um, it gave me a whole different idea kind of, of where we, we are on this. So, um, it is very interesting. So, um, with the polio vaccine, now we've talked a little bit about polio, um, a little bit about how it went. So, there's a lot of things you can go back and look at the history of polio and all that stuff that it had. Um, Robert's, or Jonas Salk is the one who um, basically made the, the initial virus, the first, or not virus, but vaccine that we use in the United States. Um, and that was first used in 1955 um and yeah but before we get to that let's talk about fdr because we mentioned franklin roosevelt um our president franklin d roosevelt was the 32nd president of the united states um he served four terms as the u.s president and actually is the reason why we have the term limit law now um to restrict that from happening again but he served four terms um but he was also the first president with a significant physical disability. So FDR was diagnosed with infantile paralysis, better known as polio, in 1921 at the age of 39. Most people, you know, did not or got polio as children. That's why it was considered the infantile paralysis. But it was not uncommon for people of older ages to get it. Um, so coming from a wealthy family, FDR was privileged to enjoy summers at the camp. Campobello Island Family Cottage that was purchased by his parents in New Brunswick, Canada. Blame Canada. Oh, sorry. Uh, it was at this site that FDR manifested the symptoms of the insidious and deadly enemy known as the infantile paralysis. No one is certain of the circumstances leading to his contraction of polio. Many believe he was exposed to the virus at a Boy Scout camp in New York just prior to going to Campobello. During the summer of 1921, FDR was enjoying a day of sailing on his yacht when he suddenly fell overboard into the icy waters of the Bay of Fundy, which ironically felt paralyzing to his body. 
The following day, FDR complained of lower back pain and went for a swim in hopes to ease the soreness. As the day progressed, he could feel his legs becoming weaker, and by the third day, he could no longer hold his own weight. His skin became quickly became very sensitive, and eventually even a slight breeze across his body caused great distress. Eleanor, who couldn't bear to see her husband in such anguish, began to contact a handful of doctors, hoping one of them would be able to find a remedy to his unknown infirmity. One of these doctors was Dr. Keene, who insisted the issue stemmed from a blood clot located in the lower spinal cord and recommended that he receive lumbar massages daily in order to help circulation. Days later, FDR was notified by Dr. Keene that his earlier diagnosis was incorrect, and instead he claimed the stress was being caused by spinal lesions. The massage therapy continued but did not prove to be successful in curing the paralysis. On August 25, 1921, another physician, Dr. Robert Lovett, diagnosed FDR with infantile paralysis, i.e. polio. At that time, polio had no known cure and often resulted in full or partial paralysis and the erosion of one's motor skills. Levitt, who was an expert on the disease, insisted Franklin stop the massages as they were not helping the situation, possibly making it worse. He instead suggested that he take hot baths. Best way to, discur- to, to fix anything, take a hot bath. Both FDR and Eleanor were surprised by this verdict, as it was uncommon for a middle-aged person to contract polio. Most cases of the disease were acquired during infancy, but most children became immune to the disease by the age of four. Levitt explained that in order for a person to combat poliomyelitis, they must be in good emotional and physical health and have a healthy immune system. This made FDR rethink the actuality of having the disease, since he could recall frequently becoming ill as a young boy, but for the past few years he had been leading a stressful life in politics that may have weakened his immunity. At the age of 39, FDR became a victim of infantile paralysis. So, yeah, at the age of 39. So, kind of interesting, especially with a disease called infantile paralysis. Uh, it was during fall of 1921 when FDR made the decision to remove himself from political life in order to become begin his rehabilitation process at his home in Hyde Park, New York. For several years, his main focus shifted from politics recovering from his paralysis. FDR began routinely swimming three times a week in the astral pool and in the pond. He had realized that his legs could support the weight of his body in water with ease and used swimming as his main exercise. By the winter of that year, his arms regained strength, his nervous system was functioning normally, and his stomach and lower back were getting stronger. In January 1922, FDR was fit with braces that locked in at the knee and continued the length of his leg, and by the spring of that year, he could stand with assistance. FDR made a plan that one day he would walk the length of his driveway, which was a quarter mile long. Although he never accomplished his task, task, he used it as a training procedure, working himself to the bone in hopes that he would be able to walk again if he continued exercising. Due to his bright personality, FDR insisted that he would be surrounded by good cheer throughout his rehab process. He was known for exercising constantly, even when he was surrounded by friends. He would often have people watch him and provide company as he exercised and would carry out a conversation with them despite devoting all his efforts to moving. FDR also involved his children and family with his daily exercise rituals. At first, his children were heartbroken seeing their father in such a vulnerable state, struggling to move. Eventually, they became comfortable around his condition and were proactive in helping him and involving themselves with his rehabilitation process. Eleanor called the perfect naturalness with which the children accepted his limitations though they had always known him as an active person, helped him tremendously in his own acceptance of them. So, um, yeah. So, he, he basically, you know, he got polio. Um, he did a couple things trying to get rid of it. You know, he did, you know, went to some hot springs, stuff like that. You know, did what he could to try and feel okay with it. Um, he returned to the political life, 
Um, later, he became. Uh, trying to remember what he did next. Uh, once he became into political life and got into the public eye, he did a couple things. Um, he became New York governor, I believe. And then, oh, sorry. Yeah, like I said, there's too many things right in front of me. Trying to figure this out. Uh, oh, yeah, he ran for governor of New York in 1928. His disability did not affect his votes, and as a result, he held the governorship for two terms until he decided to run for president in the 1932 election. His political advisors often worried about how successful FDR would be in the election. They feared the wor- words uh, of his opponents and the names people often called him, hoping to break his stride. Despite all of this, FDR's disability was never brought up as a problem throughout his 1932 campaign and presidency and did not affect America's love for him. Uh, in private, FDR used a special wheelchair he designed himself. He refused to use a regular wheelchair because the chairs of the time were one-size-fits-all, bulky and a nuisance to get around in. Most buildings during his era were not wheelchair accessible. Therefore, Roosevelt needed something small, appealing, efficient, and discreet. To accomplish this, he used a dining chair and, re- and replaced the legs with bicycle-like wheels. The chair was small and could move around tight corners and narrow hallways with ease. His wheelchair did not call out attention since it was made out of something people were used to seeing in their own homes. So, he did a lot. Um, the one thing he did eventually do... Um, as president and everything else, um, he started having birthday balls every January 30th. Um, he did a birthday ball to raise money for the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis, um, which he created in 1938. So he did that. The fundraising for the National Foundation evolved into what we now know as the March of Dimes. This was a fundraiser in which all of its proceeds went to the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis. The annual continuation of this occasion eventually funded the research for the Salk vaccine to treat polio. Unfortunately, FDR never lived to see it. So he did a lot. So that's one thing. And a lot of that comes from, you know, everything I was just talking about and all the information I just got came from the FDR uh, library. So, which is a great, if you want to know more about FDR and some of the stuff he did for polio, the FDR library is amazing on that. So, things you want to look at there. So, there, there's a lot to do with the polio vaccine that, you know, you really don't think of. So, like we said, polio is a very highly contagious virus. It affects people differently. Some don't feel sick at all. Others complain of anything from a sore throat to fever, stomach pain and vomiting, stiff neck or headache. The virus does its damage by first replicating, reproducing itself in the intestines, then traveling through the bloodstream, where it can affect the brain and spinal cord. So, um, it's a nasty, nasty thing. Um, there are multiple vaccines out there now. Um, so, part of that was the the two people, really. Uh, Sabin and Sulk were the two main ones. So, and we're not going to go too deep into... Um, into it, I guess, now because we're starting to run out of time because I, I spent way too much time on just everything else. Um, like I said, th- th- there was thoughts that HIV was brought in by the the, 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 the first vaccine that has been proven wrong. Um, but there was a bit of rivalry between two people, um, the two original vaccines, Salk and Sabin, and it was a huge... A contributory factor to the United States and others choose to pursue different polio vaccine programs. 
So in April 1955, the results of the largest clinical trial ever held at that time were made public. More than 400,000 U.S. children had been immunized, immunized with Salk's IPV, and as the results of effective protection against this dreaded disease were declared, Americans breathed a collective sigh of relief. The Salk vaccine was declared 90% effective against type 2 and 3 poliovirus and 60-70% to 70% effective against type 1. Within two hours, Salk's IPV was licensed for use thanks to guarantees from the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis. Now the March of Dimes industrial production facilities were already built and ready to operate. The goal was to have 5 million U.S. children vaccinated by July 1955. Across the Atlantic, some European countries imported the Salk vaccine from the United States, whereas others, including Denmark, Sweden, and the Netherlands, began vaccine production in their own government facilities. So, and there was a lot of things with his. Uh, many virologists were of the opinion that Salk's vaccine could not provide long-lasting protection, and this could only be achieved with Sabin's live attenuated version. Only a live vaccine, it was argued, had insufficient immunogenicity to yeah, I can't say that word. To provide protection, in contrast, an inactivated vaccine would have to be readministered regularly. Undeterred by Salk's popular success, Cox and Kaprowski um, and Sabin at the University of Cincinnati continued work on their live attenuated virus preparations. Trials of their vaccines took place largely outside the United States because widespread immunization with Salk vaccine meant that most U.S. children had antibody levels that were too high to enable evaluation of a second vaccine. So that's kind of, you know, where the vaccine started to come into play. Um, then, you know, of course, like we said, you know, President, you know, Roosevelt pushed through the March of Dimes and everything else to make, you know, vaccines more common, you know, help bring about the polio vaccine. But this is one of those things you've got to remember. This is over decades. Um, it was 1955. Ten years after Roosevelt died, that they were able to make this vaccine a reality. Um, so that means that he fought for you know, what 1921, as I think when I said he got the when when he got it. So you got to think about that. 1921, he got it, and then. It took until 1955 to develop a, a usable vaccine. It's over, you know, that's years. That's decades. So, yeah. So, it's kind of one of those things that you got to think about how long it took. This wasn't something that was six months. This was decades. Um, yeah. So, it, it's... So, the Italian heartbreak and death was staggering polio in American story. The historian David M. Oshinsky chronicles the loss in 1949 of the 428 cases recorded during an outbreak in San, San Angelo, Texas. 84 victims, most of them children, were left paralyzed and 28 dead. Um, in 1946, there were 25,000 reported cases across the country. By 1952, the figure jumped to 58,000. Unlike the Spanish, Spanish flu, whose special horror was to strike down the healthy in the prime of life, and COVID-19, which placed the elderly at greatest risk, Polio targeted children, mainly crippling and killing with what seemed like almost un, almost premeditated malice. Always on alert for symptoms, generations of parents felt a chill of their own when a child contracted a cold, complained of a headache, or had a stiff neck. So that that's the scary part about this. There was some issues um, with some of the vaccines in a 1954 um there were some issues when they were doing the, the testing. 
Um, so on August 30th, 1954, Bernice E. Eddy, a veteran scientist at the National Institute of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, was checking a batch of new polio vaccine for safety. Um, created by Jonas Salk, the vaccine was hailed as a miracle drug that would conquer the dreaded illness that killed and paralyzed children. Eddy's job was to examine samples submitted by the companies planning to make it. As she checked a sample from Cutter Laboratories in Berkeley, California, she noticed that the vaccine designed to protect against the disease had instead given polio to a test monkey. Rather than containing killed virus to create immunity, the sample from Cutter contained live infectious virus. Something was wrong. There's going to be a disaster, she told a friend. As scientists and politicians desperately search for medicines to slow the deadly coronavirus, um, and as President Trump touts a malaria drug as a remedy, look back to the 1955 polio vaccine tragedy shows how hazardous such a search can be, especially under intense public pressure. So this is one of those things where someone saw a problem and they didn't say anything. So, and this is from the Washington Post. Despite Eddie's warnings, an estimated 120,000 children that year were injected with the Cutter vaccine, according to Paul A. Offit, director of the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Roughly 40,000 got abortive polio with fever, sore throat, headache, vomiting, and muscle pain. 51 were paralyzed and five died, Offit wrote in his 2005 book. The Cutter incident, how America's first polio vaccine led to the growing vaccine crisis. It was one of the worst biological disasters in American history, a man-made polio epidemic. In those days, polio or infantile paralysis was a terror. National poll found that polio was second only to the atomic bomb as a thing that Americans feared most. Think of that. People feared the atomic bomb, but they... Only second to the atomic bomb was polio. People weren't sure how you got it. Therefore, they were scared of everything. They didn't want to buy a piece of fruit at the grocery store. It's the same now. Everybody's walking around with gloves on, with masks on, scared to shake anybody's hand. The worst polio outbreak in U.S. history struck in 1952, the year after Offit was born. It infected 57,000 people, paralyzed 21,000 and killed 3,145. The next year, there were 35,000 infections and 38,000 the year after that. Many survivors had to wear painful metabrases on their paralyzed legs or had to be placed in so-called iron lungs, which helped them breathe. There was no vaccine and few treatments. One bogus approach was to spray acid into the noses of children to block the virus. Acid. All it did was ruin the sense of smell. Acid into the nose of nose of children. Often polio victims were children. Most famous, like we said, President Roosevelt got it in 1921 when he was 39. In 1951, Jonas Salk of the University of Pittsburgh's Medical School received a grant from National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis, now known as March of Dimes, uh, to find a vaccine. During intense months of research, he took polio, live polio viruses and killed it with formaldehyde until it was not infectious but still provided virus-fighting antibodies. When Chess showed that the vaccine was safe, Salk told his wife, I've got it. Word of his success soon leaked out. Public pressure grew for the vaccine and for a large-scale trial. So... On April 26, 1954, Randy Kerr, a six-year-old second grader from Falls Church, Virginia, stood in the cafeteria of the Franklin Sherman Elementary School in McLean and became the first to be vaccinated in a massive field study. Salk's vaccine was given to 420,000 children. A placebo was given to 200,000 and 1.2 million were given nothing. 
The study found that children who not, did not get the vaccine were three times more likely to be paralyzed with polio than those who received the vaccine. A year later, on April 12, 1955, when officials announced the results at a news conference at the University of Michigan, there was jubilation. Reporters hollered, it works, it works. The news made front page headlines across the country. People wept. There were parades in Jonas Salk's honor. That's what contributed to the tragedy of Cutter more than anything else. So it was the pressure to get it done. So yeah, so that's kind of, you know, it was tough. Um, you know, you got that whole thing where everyone's pushing for this vaccine and then they finally push it through and you get a tainted version. So um, there's a lot of things that you can go through. And if you look through a lot of the vaccines, there's a lot of similar things, you know, with things, you know, Guillain-Barre syndrome was thought to be given to people from the swine flu that has been you know, supposedly uh, debunked. But there are a few others. Menin- Meningococcal, uh, or GBS, another one, Guillain-Barre syndrome, uh, narcolepsy from H1N1, rotavirus vaccines, uh, porcine circovirus in rotavirus vaccines, um, HBV vaccine recalls. There's a lot of vaccine recalls, but a lot of them have been debunked. But that kind of goes, you know... Yeah, a couple other things to, to look at there. So, uh, like I said earlier, March of Dimes, Franklin D. Roosevelt, who was a, a, you know, had, you know, who contracted polio, started the March of Dimes um, to help fight and find a cure for polio. Um, yeah. So, there are a few things here where you can find... Um, different articles that I've gone through about polio vaccine. Some of the things, um, eight things on history.com that you need to know about Jonas Salk. One, although polio was the most feared disease of the 20th century, it was hardly the deadliest. Polio was never the raging epidemic portrayed in the media, not even at its height in the 1940s and 1950s, writes David M. Oshinsky in his Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Polio and American Story. During those decades, 10 times as many children died in accidents and three times as many succumbed to cancer. Oshinsky notes that polio inspired such fear because it struck without warning. And researchers were unsure of how it spread from person to person. In the years following World War II, polls found the only thing Americans feared more than polio was nuclear war. Huh. Sounds like propaganda to me. Um, Franklin D. Roosevelt, like I said, was instrumental in the vaccine's development. Salk challenged prevailing scientific orthodoxy in his vaccine development, um, which we talked about that he did. Um, most scientists believe that effective vi- vaccines could only be developed with live viruses. Salk developed a killed virus vaccine by growing samples of the virus and then deactivating them, biting from aldehyde so they could no longer reproduce. By injecting the benign strains into the bloodstream, the vaccine tricked the immune system into manufacturing protective antibodies without the need to introduce a weakened form of the virus into healthy patients. Many researchers, such as Polish-born virologist Albert Sabin, who was developing an oral live virus polio vaccine called Salk's Approach Dangerous, Sabin even belittled Salk as a mere kitchen chemist. The hard-charging O'Connor, however, had grown impatient at the time-consuming process of developing a live virus vaccine and put the resources of the March of Dimes behind Salk. Uh, Salk has tested the vaccine on himself. 
and his family. After successfully inoculating thousands of monkeys, Salk began the risky step of testing the vaccine on humans in 1952. In addition to administering the vaccine to children at two Pittsburgh area institutions, Salk injected himself, his wife, and his three sons in his kitchen after boiling the needles and syringes on his stovetop. Salk announced the sex of this initial human test to a national radio audience on March 26, 1953. Uh, clinical trial was the biggest public health experiment in American history. We mentioned that earlier where there was 200,000 kids given it. Um, and the, one of the big ones, and this is something I bet you cannot say about the new vaccines, Salk did not patent his vaccine. He did not. Salk made nothing off his vaccine. On April 12, 1955, the day the Salk vaccine was declared safe, effective, and potent, legendary CBS newsman Edward, Edward R. Morrow interviewed its creator and asked who owned the patent. We're the people, I would say, said Salk. In light of the millions of charitable donations raised by the March of Dimes that founded the vaccine's research and field testing, there is no patent. Could you patent the sun? Lawyers for the foundation had investigated the possibility of patenting the vaccine but did not pursue it, in part because of Salk's reluctance. So, uh, although a tainted batch of the Salk vaccine killed 11 people, Americans continued vaccinating their children. So, and then Sabin's vaccine overtook Salk's in the 1960s and then actually was Salk's, a version of Salk's, was replaced later on um, because of other issues. So, once Sabin's oral vaccine finally became available in 1962, it quickly supplanted Salk's injected vaccine because it was cheaper to produce and easier to administer. Ultimately, both vaccines produced the bitter, by the bitter rivals nearly eradicated disease from the planet. According to the World Health Organization, there were only 416 reported cases of polio worldwide in 2013, mostly confined to a handful of Asian and African countries. Since Sabin's little live virus vaccine, which is responsible for about a dozen cases of polio each year, is seen as a final obstacle to eliminating the disease in most of the world, the WHO has urged polio-free countries to return to Salk's killed virus vaccine. So, yeah. So that's a, a lot of it. Um, a lot of the stuff. We're gonna. I'm going to end with this a little bit here. There have been uh, some cases, and this is where we get the whole thing where people talk about how the virus is gives back more people polio than, than than get it in the wild. Is because that is true now. It is true as of right now, not back then. This has actually pretty much eradicated it, but it is true now. So, um, so here we go. Nigeria, Democratic Republic of Congo, Central African Republic, and Angola have experienced nine new cases of polio caused by the live virus and oral polio vaccines that has mutated into an infectious form, according to six, six released last week by the World Health Organization. Um, this is from November 9, 2019, um, and this is in The Scientist. Uh, that brings the globe total of these types of infections to 157 for the year, and it means that more children are paralyzed as a result of such vaccine-derived infections than illness caused by the wild-type virus, which has affected 107 people this year. Other countries in Africa and Asia have also reported such vaccine-derived infections, which have the potential to spark new outbreaks. In Africa alone, there are currently a dozen vaccine-derived polio outbreaks, and another was declared in the Philippines last month, the country's first case of disease in more than 25 years. To finally eliminate the world of polio, global leaders convened last week at the reach, reaching the last mile forum in Abu Dhabi, 
pledging $2.6 billion to the effort. The main impediment is vaccination coverage in certain regions, particularly Afghanistan and Pakistan, the last two countries where polio remains to be eradicated. While Western countries use an injectable solution of an inactivated virus, an oral, oral polio vaccine contaminating containing the live attenuated viruses used for vaccination campaigns in Africa and Asia because relatively cheap to produce and easy to administer, requiring just two drops of medicine in the mouth. However, the risk is that the attenuated live virus is particularly type 2, which is the root of all current vaccine-derived polio cases. Um, it can mutate and become pathogenic. Fortunately, vaccine can protect against such vaccine-derived strains. The solution is the same for all polio outbreaks. Immunize every child several times with the oral vaccine to stop polio transmission, regardless of the origin of the virus. So um, it's crazy to think that right now, basically, there's more being done by the, the, the oral virus than anything else. But they're saying basically to get that to stop is to um, just basically give the injection. So and that should make it work. Um, so hopefully soon that that'll be completely eradicated. Um, the last thing before I leave um, is here's a couple quick Quick things to look at of gutsy scientists who risk death testing vaccines on themselves. So this is kind of funny to me. In 1875, high up in the Andes Mountains, hundreds of Peruvian railroad workers began coming down with a strange fever, which was followed by severe joint pain and then death. As the body count soared, alarms set in across the country, desperate to explain the origins of this strange new malady, a Peruvian medical society announced a contest. A 26-year-old medical student named Daniel Carrion entered. Scientists Peru had a hunch the fever was connected to Peruvian warts, but they struggled to prove a link to carry on those f whose father was a well-known physician. There was a simple solution. If someone injected him with the tissue from a wart on one of the sick patients and then he got sick, then viola. Problem solved. There's a connection, but there was another problem. Those who got the fever generally died. Karen was undeterred. Once he made the decision the experiment on a human was necessary, he mu must have asked himself on whom? Well, why not himself? Uh, so he did. And he got the fever, and he died. So he proved the connection, uh, but it killed him. So, but in, you know, that one too, he ended up with, there's, in Peru, there's multiple statues and stuff of him, you know, saying thank you and, and stuff like that. He was considered a, a pioneer. So, um, Jonas Salk, like we said earlier, tested the polio vaccine on himself and his, his family. Um, before he gave it to people. Um, uh, 1986, Daniel Zaguri, a French immunologist, appointed himself to be the first person dosed with an experimental AIDS vaccine. Uh, 2012 study identified 466 episodes of doctor self-experiments with 140 of them related to dangerous infectious diseases. Eight self-experiments resulted in death, including physicians and scientists trying to curtail outbreaks of plague, typhus, cholera, and yellow fever. Well, would possess someone to say drink a hearty soup infused with cholera bacteria, as Max Joseph Pettenkoffer did in 1892. Historically, self-exploration experimentation was an important part of the scientific process, allowing medical advances that would have been hard to achieve otherwise. So, yeah, because no sane human would agree to a, be a research participant, no ethical review board in its right mind would approve the experiment. So they do it to themselves. So, yeah, so it's crazy to think about. And there's some other ones that you can find if you look them up. But it's one of those things to look back on. 
Is a vaccine a good thing? Yes, I have no problem with vaccines. I am not an anti-vaxxer. I am not one of these people that are like, vaccines are bad. No, I don't really believe that. I believe that science has shown that vaccines can be good. Is there a downsize to vaccines? Yes, there can be. Um, we had the problem with the polio virus where there was a, a, a bad polio virus that gave people the, the, the disease. Uh, the oral version with the live virus has given more people polio than the, the wild strains at this point. But both of those are less than 200. That's not many. And they've proven that if you use salts, you know, killed version, it doesn't do it. Um, so it's a matter of, you know, basically cost effectiveness is why they keep using the oral version. Um, we've almost eradicated it. A vaccine can be a good thing if it is done correctly. The only problem that I've said before is the reason I have an issue with the COVID vaccine is it's been pushed um, and it had been hurried. And we see that in the polio vaccine before. Like I said, I know there is another one, but I can't find it. Um, so if anyone has any information on the one, the, the, the virus that was done before that, that was a problem besides the cutter, um, let me know. Let me know if you can find it on that because I could find stuff on it, but I couldn't find who made it or anything like that. But there's a couple things that I found that may have been that they were talking about the cutter virus, the, the cutter, you know, mistake. So that might be it. And maybe there wasn't one between, you know, uh, the two, the 1950 uh, one and uh, Sulks. So let me know. Um, it's one of those things. Let me know what your thoughts on viruses or the, of, of vaccinations are. I am not, like I said, somebody who's against vaccinations. I'm just against hurried vaccinations. I'm also against, you know, being forced to take a vaccination. Um, it, it's not the way it should be. There should not be mandates. I should have the choice to, you know, whether or not I want to take a vaccine. Um, and... It just, I don't like the idea. So it's kind of one of those things, you know, the polio vaccine. The polio vaccine um, isn't mandated. Um, it's recommended. Um, but it's not mandated. And that's one thing you got to remember. Those weren't. So you can go ahead and talk about all the other mandates. I can't find really a lot on mandatory um, vaccines in the United States. Um, I find ones where they say they, they couldn't go to school unless they had the, the vaccines. They did restrict people from doing things, but nothing where the government said, you take this or you're going to jail. Um, do I think that's possible in what's coming for COVID? I, I honestly, unfortunately do. Um, I think I'm not sure if they're going to come down with a mandate, but I think it's going to come down to where you can't go places. You can't go to concerts. You can't fly. You can't do all that without a, a paper that says, this is what I need to fly. Um, I have my papers, uh, my papers, where are your papers? Um, yeah, so I, I don't like it. I don't like where we're going with it. Um, the polio vaccine, I think is an amazing thing of science, but it took decades to come up with. Um, and the problem we're seeing like right now with the COVID vaccine, I know I said I wasn't gonna go too far down this one, but with the COVID vaccine, where they're sitting there telling us we need the COVID vaccine so we can get back to normal, we can get back to reality. But then I see as I drive around my state, the big signs that say vaccinated or not, mask up. Well, why did I why would I get a vaccine if it doesn't change a damn thing? Why? Why? If I'm gonna get a vaccine, I'm getting a vaccine so that I so I'm protected. 
If you're telling me that getting the vaccine doesn't protect me from shit, why in the hell do you want me to take your stupid vaccine? Why? Who's profiting from this? It's one thing that amazes me with Salk. Salk asked for nothing. Sabin asked for nothing. They patent, did not patent their vaccines because they wanted to help people. I don't think these COVID vaccines are to help people. I think these COVID vaccines are to help the pocketbook. Because th- th- there's not... I don't believe there's enough issues and enough need for the vaccine as they're pushing it. Um, we've talked about this before. I'm not gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna get off my high horse here in a sec. Um, we've talked about it before, but I, I don't think that the vaccines are made with the idea that you know they're really there to help us. They're made because well, somebody wants to line their pocketbook, and that's the way it is. So um, let me know what your thoughts are. Let me know what you think. Um, If there's anything I missed in the vaccines, uh, anything like that. Um, Thank you all for listening. Um, Have a great day. Um, I will see you all Sunday. I will be back with Big D. Um, And yeah, thank you all for listening. Send emails down the rh at protonmail.com let me know what you think let me know your thoughts i've got a couple good emails with ideas on uh things that people want to hear about um let me know what you want to hear about uh send me messages mr underscore b underscore 666 um on instagram so and that's mr spelled out m-i-s-t-e-r underscore b underscore 666 um let me know your thoughts um let me know your questions thank you all i will see you all later i'm out